and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told to the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. I hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories, and I am your host, Fred. Today, continuing on our Festival of Fright, or should I say the Festival Fest of Fright, uh, horror tales, chilling uh, stories for your bones, um, this time with a continuation of Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater's The Buoy. Um, neighbors to us help here in Portland, Maine. Something about uh, New England is just kind of iffy in the waters. And the story you're going to hear uh, the rest of today, um, Chris talked very highly of it in his Malleus column a few months back, and I had to ch- check it out. It is a chilling tale reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe's Pit and the Pendulum um, about unsuspected tourist who becomes caught in unrelenting horror he is well last week we got the setup he was uh, well there's a new tourist he's on the island he misses his uh, boat or yeah he misses the ferry back um to land um and so he uh, stays at this inn where he uh, hears a an old traveler recount the story this terrifying terrible experience of him um being caught while in the middle of the night dragged out to this buoy um tied up there and left um, and, and just uh, about the point we left last week, he just realized that the tide is coming in. Um, the buoy is getting dragged deeper out into the deeper waters by the current, and uh, he is powerless to stop it. It's just a completely terrifying experience. So enjoy now the riveting conclusion of The Buoy. In the calm following my panic, I began to think more clearly. I began to face up to the situation I was in. The current was dragging the buoy under, that much was obvious. The question was, how far would it go? (laughs) It almost sounded like the sort of question you'd expect to encounter on a high school science test. And so I tried to think back. I tried to remember everything I had ever learned about the tides. I was aware, basically, that the tide changes direction every six hours, which meant that at some time during the next six hours, or five, I suppose it must be now, the current in the channel would reach its maximum velocity. How much of my body remained above water when that critical moment was reached was a question I found myself keenly contemplating. I peered down at the moving water and tried to judge its speed. Perhaps a knot. No more than a knot and a half. I knew that one half knot was what one would expect to encounter in the open ocean, away from any land masses that would tend to compress it and thereby increase its speed. One and one half knots was already a considerable current, which suggested that the currents in this channel might be very strong indeed. The buoy itself was also a clue. It was enormous, as I mentioned. Three or four feet of its length still towered above my head. How much of it would remain above water before the current finally slackened, and the buoy, with me upon it, was released from the grip of these rushing waters? It all depended on the tide. The tide was the key. And the higher the tide, the stronger the current. It made sense because whatever water flowed in would have to flow out again when the tide changed directions. And a higher tide meant there would be that much more water to flow out again in the same amount of time, thereby producing a stronger current. But what determined the tides? The moon, of course. The gravitational pull of the moon. I remember that much from high school science. 
the phases of the moon. Didn't they have something to do with it? The new moon and the full moon? Didn't they say that tides were highest during the new moon and full moon? But where was the moon? I searched the sky. I looked in every direction I could see, but no moon of any phase was visible. That was good, I told myself. At least that was one positive thing about this whole ordeal. Sharp jolt startled me. I suppose it must be the chain working out one of its kinks. The result was that the water was now reaching to the tops of my kneecaps. I was terrified now. Completely and utterly terrified. And then... And then my eyes happened to notice something in the eastern sky. Something low upon the horizon. The moon was coming up. I watched in horror as a great three-dimensional full moon, the color of orange, rose above the rim of the world and inclined its bald head toward me as if it were about to point out a birthmark. I began to laugh. An hysterical laughter that rose with the moon and carried away my reason. At that moment, I was no more sane than the craziest man alive. guesses I had made about the moon and effect on the tides were quite correct, but also quite limited. For example, I was not aware of the phenomenon called syzygy, nor was I aware of another celestial event that was taking place, which was to play a significant role before the night was through. The moon was entering into perigee. Do you know what that means, Mr. Halpole? Well, I'm not sure. It, it has something to do with the orbit, doesn't it? The moon enters into perigee when it passes through that part of its orbit that brings it closest to the Earth. 31,000 miles closer, which means 31,000 miles of additional gravitational pull. The moon is the main culprit, you see. Normally, the moon's gravitational pull is more than double the strength of the sun for the simple reason that although the sun is much larger... It is also much further away. During times of perigee, however, the effect of the moon is magnified by a third. In other words, in terms of ocean tides, what would normally have been a three-foot tide becomes a four-foot tide. Do you understand? Well, yes, I understand. Now, let me tell you something about how the tide actually runs through the Woods Hole Passage. The tide floods to the east and it ebbs to the west. When the water is coming in, it flows into Vineyard Sound. When it is going out, it empties into Buzz's Bay. In between is about 20 minutes of slack water. When the tide begins to ebb, the current through the passage runs at about one-half knot and increases at about one-half knot per hour until sometime between the third and fourth hours when the current reaches its maximum velocity, which is about 4.1 knots, about five miles per hour. Not so fast when you consider that a person jogging can easily run five miles per hour. But think of the force of a whole body of water moving at this speed. Think of the force of all that water piled up into Vineyard Sound and trying to force its way out through a crooked channel 300 feet wide and 13 feet deep. 
Think of the marching force of several million tons of water trying to escape, and then you will understand what danger I was in. However, these were facts I was not privy to at the time. My world became engrossed in measuring the minute advance of the water, which now had climbed to the tops of my thighs, and in coping with the cold, for it was the cold that had become my chief torment. The burlap cloth I was wrapped in seemed to do some good, like a wetsuit in keeping a layer of warm water surrounding my legs. But whatever good it provided was offset by the cold metal of the buoy itself, which functioned like a siphon to drain away my body heat. Thank God this was the south side of the Cape where the ocean waters still feel the influence of the Gulf Stream. On the north side, my survival time might be measured in the space of a single hour, but over here... Over here I could hold out much longer, with more chance of rescue. Or did it simply mean that my death would be that much worse for being drawn out? No. I still clung to the belief that this was only intended to frighten me. That the buoy would not go under. Or if it did, they would come back. Come back in time to take me off. They had to. They simply had to. I heard the sound of an approaching airplane coming from the west. I saw its wing lights blinking against the background of stationary stars. It's a measure of my desperation that I imagine that somehow they could see me. That the pilots sitting at the controls could somehow look down through the dark night and pick out this one buoy bobbing in the current and see that I was held prisoner. And he would radio for help. Radio for a boat to come out and pick me up. Save me! Save me! Save me! Time passed. I lapsed once more into stupor. In my listlessness, I began to hallucinate. In the remnants of fog that drifted by glowing in the moonlight, I saw faces. I saw people. I saw a woman in a white dress go pirouetting across the surface. I saw a ferry boat, an actual ferry boat made out of fog, pass by so close I could look in the windows and see, actually see people sitting in their seats, staring straight ahead with blank expressions. I watched the moon continue its inexorable climb into the nighttime sky, passing from orange to pale yellow, yellow like the color of the leaves in the gutter. I experienced one moment of false hope when I thought I could detect... Yes, yes, it was happening. The current was abating, the buoy coming more upright, lifting more of my body out of the water. But it was just one more thing I didn't know. That the tide runs out in stages in which it pulses and appears to slow down, even stop, before coming back again with renewed vigor. For so long now I had been going back and forth between terror and hope that I thought I... I genuinely thought that nothing could happen to make me any more terrified. 
Then I looked down and noticed something floating in the water. Small bits of something white slipping by in the current. It wasn't. In the moonlight, it looked like pieces of styrofoam. I, I couldn't quite make it out, nor could I think of what it could possibly be. Then suddenly the word shark came into my mind, and I knew instantly what it was. Chum. Someone up current of me was chumming the waters with blood and pieces of ground-up fish. Its purpose was to attract sharks. I swiveled my head. I tried to see behind, but so much of my vision was cut off. Anyway, I realized they could be doing this a long way off, and still the current would carry the scent down to me to lure them in my direction. Oh, yes, I had heard the rumors about the waters in this area. The word most often used in connection with sharks and the waters off Woods Hole was infested. Shark infested. I had heard how they like to come and congregate in the slack waters inside Great Arbor while they wait for the current in the passage to deliver up some juicy morsel. And obviously I was to be the juicy morsel. There was no longer any doubting their intentions. No point in deluding myself any longer that they were only trying to scare me or that they would be coming back to take me off. For the first time that night, I began to seriously believe that I was going to die. The fact that this was happening to me seemed so hideous, so monstrously unfair. What had I done to deserve this? I felt sad for myself. Sad that soon I would no longer know the world, and the world would no longer know me. I felt sorry for my family, for Rachel and Claudia, my wife and my daughter, who would never know what had happened to me, who would spend the rest of their lives wondering if I was still alive. I looked up at the stars, spinning around with their magnificent indifference, and it occurred to me that perhaps the motive for my death had nothing to do with the waitress or the two men standing on the dock. Perhaps it was more impersonal than that. Perhaps it had only to do with the moon. The moon was my murderer. Raising my eyes to where the moon had risen, I saw the same bald-headed gentleman, a maniacal Mr. Peanut with his monocle in place and that terrible grin as he tipped his top hat towards me. And then I saw something that made me think for certain I was going mad. Watching the moon, I could swear that the top hat was coming back on. Before my eyes, I could see it. The top hat was being replaced. My, my, my mind reared back as if to scream. When suddenly, I was arrested by a sound. A boat approaching. A motorboat coming this way. It was at this very moment that I saw my first shark. A ten-footer running near the surface, traveling down the path of moonlight, heading directly toward the buoy, towards me. Until the last second when it, it veered away, showing me the flash of its eye, its frowning mouth, and the white of its underbelly. 
I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs so the boat would hear me. And yet I was afraid. Afraid that the sounds I would make would only encourage the shark to attack. But it didn't matter anyway. The sound that reached my ears told me that the boat was not heading for the passage. It was going into Great Harbor. Time passed into oblivion, and I became insensible to everything around me. It was as if I were already dead. It was only when the water reached my chest and I felt the icy grip around my heart that I came fully awake once more. The channel had become a torrent of rushing water, the surface buckling and churning all around me. The action of the buoy itself had become increasingly violent, a relentless pounding up and down as if I were strapped to the bow of a ship. Again and again I watched in horror as the water fell away from me and then came rushing back until it was only inches from my face. Staring down into us like staring into an abyss. And then, from underwater, I felt a bump against my ribs. <coughs> a shock. <coughs> Another sound became apparent. A sound that my ears leapt to as if it was someone calling my name. Another boat coming this way. Yes, yes, not headed for the harbor, but coming this way. Sailboat, I thought. A large sailboat taking advantage of the current to make the passage through. But would he make it in time? The water was already so close to my face, I was forced to keep my chin up and my head to one side to keep my face from going under with each plunge forward. Suddenly, without warning, another slipped to the chain and I was under all the way. And then... Just as suddenly we were up again, and I was breathing. I tried to calculate how much longer before they arrived. Once inside the main channel, the passage would be swift. Navigating in the dead of night would not be easy, which meant there would be at least two of them. The captain at the wheel, someone else standing up at the bow, concentrating, keeping track of the buoys, making sure they stayed well inside them. Which meant, at some point, they would have to look directly at this buoy. But how much would they see? The buoy lying on its side with me underneath, with no more of my body visible than my head sticking above water? I wouldn't be visible to them at all until they were exactly alongside, and then only for an instant as they shot past. But what about the ropes? Would they see the ropes? The ropes must be visible from the other side. Would they see them and think it strange? Would they ask themselves what they were there for? saw the beam of a searchlight sweep over the water in front of me and then hold on the buoy. An instant later, it was off. They had seen the buoy, but had they seen me? They were coming up now, moving very quickly. The light was on me again, then away. Did they see me? Did they see me? I could see the boat coming into view. I could see the bow. I saw a man standing with a searchlight. He wasn't looking. And then, for the last time that night, I went under.
thoughts beginning to pile up in my head. I saw faces, recognizable faces of people I had known. I saw a photograph, one I had taken years before. Summertime, the grass on the riverbank soaked yellow from the setting sun. Rachel sitting there, her knees drawn up and one hand raised to shield her eyes as she looks towards the photographer, me. And into the light, the light, the light, the strong golden light. had been my torment all night long was the single factor that saved my life, causing me to hold my breath even after I had lost consciousness. To be called back like that, to be snatched from death and brought back to the world of the living was nothing less than a miracle of redemption. And yet, as it turned out, there was no easy way for me to resume living. I was marred by the nightmare of that experience, and I have never been the same since. Which is why tonight was the test, the chance to prove to myself that I have finally made the adjustment, that I have finally come to accept what happened to me, because you see, tonight is the anniversary. Tonight, celestial circumstances are exactly what they were 18 and one half years ago. Which is why I say, Mr. Hellpole, the body may survive, but it can take much longer for the spirit to recover. Your room is ready whenever you are, Mr. Hellpole. Mr. Hellpole? Mr. Hellpole? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, I was just listening to this man's most extraordinary account. 
What man is that, sir? Why, this man sitting right here. Now, where did he go? Where did who go? Why, the man who was sitting right here. You must have seen him. His name is Edward Walcott. I saw no one. But that's impossible. Why, he was sitting right here. You must have seen me talking to him. I saw you sitting. I saw you lean forward like you might be listening, but I didn't see you talking. But th- that's not possible. He was here, in this chair. Why, we had brandy together. You had brandy? Yes, we both did. Well, you see for yourself. Only one glass has been used. <gasps> oh, now, this is God. strange. There's water on the floor in front of this well, chair. Wait a minute. What did you say? I said there's water on the floor no. in front of this chair. No, no, no. When you first came in. I said, your room is ready. My God. It was a warning. He said, tonight was the anniversary. It's ready for you now, upstairs. Mr. Halpole? Where are you going? Mr. Halpole? Mr. Halpole? You have been listening to Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater's presentation of The Buoy. Tonight's program was produced, written, and directed by Stephen Thomasoni. Engineering by John Todd, Chip Davis, and Mark Birmingham. Original music and special sound processing by Mark Birmingham. The actors in tonight's play, opening monologue by Floyd Pratt. George McConville played Edward Walcott. Tom Dutton was Mr. Hal Paul, And Carol McManus played the innkeeper. This program was recorded at HT Recording Studio, Cape Cod, and at Rosemead Productions, Los Angeles. Special thanks to the Woods Hole Coast Guard Station, to Robert Eldridge White, publisher of Eldridge's Tide and Pilot Book, to Benthos, who provided the underwater hydrophones, and to the community of Woods Hole for so graciously allowing themselves to be maligned. This program is copyrighted by Stephen Tomasoni for Audio Artists Incorporated. All rights, including rights for broadcast and reproduction, are reserved. This is Floyd Pratt wishing you a pleasant evening and inviting you to tune in again when the fog rolls in on another chapter of Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater. And that was the second half of The Buoy, A Tale of Terror by Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater. Uh, find more of them at ccrmt.com. Next week, we'll be hearing from renowned horror master Jawar Lansdale, as well as uh, examples from God of the Razor, um, that piece by um, Dristmill. Um, Amen Heaven Theater, uh, you know, just a completely memorable piece of terrifying audio fiction, one of the best out there. Uh, it's been produced in several years. Um, that'll be all next week, as well as the Halloween special. Uh, 11, 9 to 11 p.m. live at wmpg.org. Stream it on Halloween night. I'm going to have a whole montage of terrifying fiction. Um, we'll probably have another piece from the Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater, some stuff of my own from Final Rune, uh, definitely something from the Grist Mill, um, as well as something actually by Roger Gregg that's uh, not always known for horror, but he's got a couple creepy tales. I'll be throwing one of those in there. Um, that'll be up wmpj.org if you want to hear it live. Um, if you can wait till after Halloween, I know it's going to be a bit of a bummer to miss it, but um, if that does happen, um, you can check it out at uh, radiodramarevival.com. We'll have it on the podcast starting probably the 1st of November. 
Uh, yeah, and so if you can't wait for more, check out the blog, radiodramarevival.com. In addition to a handy link to subscribe to the podcast, of course, you can find previous episodes, scattered bits of audio drama news, articles, and reviews, part of the Mally series, again, by Chris Duker. And while you're there, of course, why not leave a comment or two, kick the discussion off. Um, you can also find Radio Drama Revival on iTunes. Search for, guess what? <laughs> Search for Radio Drama Revival. Um, that wraps it up for this time. Uh, until next week, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.